And again, it's great to have you here this morning. And in our church family, we've been going through this last few months, we've been going through the book of Hebrews. And so if you have your Bibles here this morning, you can turn to the book of Hebrews. And uh, Gord's going to be helping uh, bring the teaching here this morning. So we want to thank Gord for all his work in preparing. And so I'll hand things over to Gord Wilson. Thanks, Gord. Perfect. Thanks, Joe. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, like Joe said, my name is Gord Wilson, uh, and I'm involved with the uh, kids' ministry here. Uh, I'm our kids and youth coordinator uh, at Christ Central Church, and I'm really hoping that everybody had a very Merry Christmas. It's nice to see everybody now uh, after, uh, after the big night, uh, and nice to see everybody after we've had a few weeks off as well. I was kind of a little bit shocked to hear that we were having another big storm today, uh, and I was a little bit worried that it was going to throw us off for another week, but luckily it's not going to hit until later on this evening. So we're good to go, um, at least until tonight. Um, so, yeah, great to see everybody. Um, and uh, we're finally getting back into our series on Hebrews. Just to let everybody know, uh, we're going to be kind of jumping around a little bit in Hebrews. Uh, I'm going to be jumping forward, so I'm speaking on Hebrews 9 this morning if you want to open up. Uh, you can get ready uh, in Hebrews 9. Uh, and later on, we'll actually be going back and looking at Hebrews 8. Our last uh, preach uh, in Hebrews was actually from Hebrews 7. Uh, so just to give you a heads up on what's coming there, just so you know. Uh, and luckily, um, well, you, luckily I would say, uh, a lot of the themes uh, in the books are actually very well connected, uh, and they all tie in very well. And so... Uh, even though there's a little bit of similarity, it's, it's nice that actually we're able to jump forward to Hebrews 9, uh, and it's not too big of an issue that we're actually missing out uh, on Hebrews 8 and coming back to that a little bit later. So, um, just a little bit of background info for some of you who might not know me. Uh, I think many of you would know that I'm actually a supply teacher right now, um, and uh, actually last year had the, uh, we'll say privilege, it was a privilege, of doing my second internship, actually, in a middle school teaching grade 7 math. Uh, and often you would come back after doing a, a math class uh, with the kids, and you'd be like, all right, so who remembers that yesterday we were looking at patterns? And they would look at you with blank looks and stares. Uh, and so after three weeks of being out of Hebrews, I'm hoping that we can all kind of adjust and get back in a little bit quicker um, and for any of you who are middle schoolers here, uh, no offense. I'm just, I'm just calling it as it is, man. Um, so I'll give you a quick refresher on what we've been going through just very briefly a little bit uh, in the book of Hebrews. And so uh, Hebrews, uh, if you were going to kind of sum it up in one sentence, uh, is all about how Jesus Christ is superior. Um, and you might ask, well, superior to what, to who? Um, and the answer to that, actually, as you go through the first few chapters, especially, is, well, basically everything. Uh, and so as you go, it goes through and it actually talks about uh, how Jesus is superior to angels. It talks about how Jesus is superior to Moses. Um, and, and we're going to be looking a little bit today how Jesus is actually superior to rituals or symbols uh, that we actually see happening within the Old Testament. Um, uh, and when we talk about the Old Testament, we're talking about actually the time before Jesus came, when God's people, the Israelites, uh, actually uh, worshipped in a very different manner, that it was all based on uh, a lot of ritual, it's all based on a lot of law, uh, and there was a lot of uh, kind of very um, by-the-book 
point form things that you really had to do in almost every circumstance. There was a lot of uh, things that told you what you couldn't eat, what you could eat. There were a lot of things that told you, you know, how you had to wash or uh, what you had to, uh, to do in, in basically any circumstance. Um, and so we're going to be looking at actually how uh, Jesus, actually, uh, when he came, and we, we celebrated the coming of Jesus just this past week with Christmas, Jesus coming um, and usually we, we uh, think of that as Jesus coming as a baby. We think of the birth of Christ at, at Christmas. Um, but actually, Jesus lived his life as a man. Um, uh, and uh, we, we believe, and it's, it's in the Bible, that actually Jesus was the Son of God as well. Okay? And so Jesus was fully man that he came, and he endured all of the shame uh, and uh, all of the nuances of being a man, that he was a baby, that, you know, he had to have someone who would change him when he wet his diaper. Uh, he had to go through all of, uh, all of the, you know, uh, things that we do of getting hungry, of getting sleepy. Uh, all of that was part of who Jesus was when he came and lived as a man. But actually, we also read that Jesus was the Son of God. In John 1, 1, it says, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And talking all about how Jesus, in one sense, was with God, his Father, but also was God himself, okay? So Jesus has, has this dual nature of being both man, having lived life as a man, but also being God. Uh, and so that's quite important in, in moving forward uh, for us uh, to take a look at. Uh, and so uh, we talked a little bit about how in the Old Testament uh, there were a lot of laws, traditions, and that sort of thing. Uh, and so when we talked about being one of God's people, okay, what it meant to identify yourself as one of God's people, uh, it really was uh, all about upholding these very specific traditions, uh, it, very detailed step-by-step uh, -step things that you would have to go through. Um, and ultimately, uh, the point of these, uh, of these traditions, the point of these, these uh, laws, uh, and many of you would have heard of the uh, commandments, the Ten Commandments given to Moses, but actually there's a whole book, in fact, multiple books of laws uh, and, 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 and all sorts of legal details that go along with it. Um, and that was all given to Moses, written down. And basically, it was God speaking to his people and telling them how to live. And so uh, in the Old Testament, when we talk about the Old Testament before Jesus came, it was all about... Um, you know, these commandments that God had given, this law that God had given, and you had to follow them uh, as best you could, uh, and you had to try and basically go, 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 uh, and hit every one of these, uh, these laws, uh, or else you were basically set apart from God, you were put wrong with God, um, and ultimately uh, there needed to be some sort of uh, an atonement for that, okay? Uh, and so a lot of these, uh, these atonement things, a lot of these things to get you set right with God uh, involved sacrifice. And in fact, uh, there was an entire day, uh, if you've ever heard of Yom Kippur, uh, that's actually uh, the name um, uh, of, it's the day of atonement, essentially, in which uh, one man who was chosen as uh, the high priest for the people of Israel, God's people, uh, would basically make a sacrifice uh, and he would uh, use the blood of bulls, and he would use the blood of um, uh, of goats, and basically he would sprinkle that over the people. And that is essentially uh, 
how people would become right with God. It was by the sacrifice, by some, something basically being killed. Okay? Um, and this is, I, I'd, I'd like to, to pause on this. Uh, so our scripture that we're going to be going through, Hebrews 9, uh, the reason I've kind of done this, this kind of big lead up to it is because I think often when we hear something like that, so for example, uh, if I was up here and I had a bowl of goat's blood and I started to sprinkle it every which way, um, I think there would probably be some people in here who would be pretty unimpressed with me. Uh, I bet you before I got to the second or third sprinkle, I would be tackled and I wouldn't be allowed back up. And, <laughs> and oftentimes, I think we can hear these things um, and there's in our, in our heads, we kind of dismiss a lot of these Old Testament things. Uh, and this passage in, in Hebrews 9 is very, very, very much focused on uh, Old Testament rituals and how they apply uh, for us in the New Testament. But we hear these Old Testament things and we think, well, that's barbaric. That's old. We don't need to listen to that. That's just how it was. It doesn't, it's not something for us today. We've moved past that. Actually, we're, we're advanced past that. It's not important. And so we can dismiss it out of hand without really thinking about the meaning of it without really thinking about what it was for, and without really thinking about, well, actually, how is this a reflection of the character and goodness of God? Okay, and so we're going to actually kind of um, go through all of that, and we're going to take a look at it. Uh, and this passage, like I said, uh, in Romans chapter 9, I've kind of chunked it up a little bit. So we're going to start Romans 9, verses 1 to 5, if, uh, if you want to open up to that. Uh, I actually will have it up on the screen. Um, and, uh, Josh, if you wouldn't mind, where was, I had, a, I had a helper. Josh was going to come down and help me, uh, out with, uh, the lights. Josh Laver? No? Oh, Josh Ritchie. Sorry, that was my bad. I thought, Joe, you'd talk to him, but anyway. Uh, sorry, Josh. Thanks for that, man. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read out this passage, and actually, just so that you can kind of visualize it, I have a picture up here um, of what uh, the Old Testament uh, tabernacle would look like, and later on this became a temple, okay? And so this was actually the place of worship for the Israelites, okay? So this will just kind of help you to visualize a little bit um, what's actually being talked about in these verses. So we start, uh, verse 1, it says, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship uh, and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which, uh, in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence were in. Okay? And so if you were to look at that, uh, the first section of it is actually, um, there's, two, um, there's two kind of curtains that you can see, one farther over on the right uh, and one closer in. And so the first section that they're talking about here is actually that bigger section between uh, the two curtains, okay? And that is actually the place that's called the holy place, okay? So that first section, we call that the holy place. Now, behind the second curtain, so this one that's farther over uh, to uh, the left uh, from your perspective, uh, uh, behind the second curtain was a section section, and it was called the most holy place. So we've got the holy place over here, not to be confused with the smaller section over here, which is called the most holy place. And in the most holy place, we actually have a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. Now, 
in the Ark of the Covenant was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff. Aaron was actually the first high priest, the first person uh, to enact um, these uh, atonement rituals for the Israelite, uh, the Israelites, uh, and also had the tablets of the covenant uh, where you would have the 12 commandments written, uh, or the 10 commandments, sorry. Uh, now, above it, it talks about cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Okay? The mercy seat would actually be the top, and if we look in that smaller section, uh, the most holy place, if we look in that, uh, that second smaller section, you can see the golden box uh, on the top of that actually is the mercy seat. And that is where the blood would actually be uh, sprinkled uh, as an act of atonement, as a sacrifice to basically uh, purge the Israelites of their sin, to basically act as uh, a sacrifice in order to take their, uh, their sin away, their, uh, their wrongdoing. Okay? Now, uh, you hear the word cherubim. It talks about how above uh, the, uh, the mercy seat we actually have cherubim. Uh, on the curtain, that second curtain that leads into the, uh, the most holy place, actually were embroidered cherubim. And cherubim were a type of angel, just to give you a bit of context for what that is if you've never heard that word. Okay, uh, And just as the last thing, um, interesting uh, little section that the writer of Hebrews adds in, it says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Okay, So, um, just to, to give you a bit of a, an understanding of what's going on here, because I hear all of this uh, about the Old Testament, and I think, well, this really has absolutely nothing uh, to do with me. Okay, And it really is not something that's uh, that's going to be of interest. That's something that passed. It's something that was uh, important to the Israelites. But actually, now, in today's era, we don't do any sacrificing. We don't see go- goats and bulls and, and things being sacrificed for, uh, in order to, to save ourselves. That's, that's, not a, that's not a thing that we see happening. It's not something we see uh, prominently. Okay? But um, actually... Uh, all of these different pieces that they talk about in here, um, we could go into great detail about how these different pieces actually reflect a taste of what was to come, a taste of God's plan for what was to come. In the Old Testament, we have all of these legal structures. Okay? We have all of these different pieces that fit into um, this is actually uh, originally a tent of meeting. Later on, it became a temple, and actually the temple looked very similar. Although there were a few additions, obviously it would be uh, a bigger, it would be a building rather than uh, uh, a giant tent uh, that, would, uh, that would go over it. But ultimately, all these different pieces are actually a foreshadowing of something better that is to come. Okay? So if we wanted to, we could talk about the bread of the presence just as an example. And so actually in our picture here, if you were to look at the far wall in there, uh, in between uh, the two curtains, so in the holy place, actually there's a table there where there was always supposed to be bread of the presence. Okay? And this was a special bread that the Israelites were commanded to actually always keep at this table and to be continually refilling. And it was a duty of the priests, those who served uh, uh, the people as um, uh, for God, basically it was the duty of these priests to be constantly uh, placing bread on there, refilling the bread, making sure that the bread was always present. Okay? If we wanted to, we could actually focus in on that. 
And we could see that actually the bread of the presence that's always there, always in the holy place, actually that's a reflection of how God always sets for us a table of food. That God, for us, always has provision. That God never lets uh, our table go moldy. He never lets our food go moldy and grow stale. Actually, that's a reflection of God's provision for us. We could focus in on that. We could focus in on the lampstand, which is always lit. It was, uh, it was actually, uh, the Israelites were commanded that it was never to go out. And actually, that lampstand was meant to be a reflection of the light of God that was always with his people. Okay? And I think the author of Hebrews was actually anticipating this sort of move. He was anticipating that we would get caught up in these when actually he's got bigger things in mind. And that's why he says of these things, we cannot now speak in detail because actually he wants to point us to something bigger. He wants to point us to something better. Okay? And so all of these pieces that we see within the tabernacle, okay, within, and the tabernacle, uh, if you're not sure about that word, it actually just means the meeting place. Okay? Uh, and so the tabernacle is where uh, basically people came to meet uh, with God, okay? And there was only, uh, in the Old Testament, there was only one man who ever got to really uh, be in the full presence of God. There was only one man who, uh, who got to enter in to that presence of God, and that was the high priest, okay? And only on one day a year was he allowed to go past that second curtain into uh, the most holy place, and offer sacrifices for the atonement of people. So that people's wrongdoing, their sins, their lying, uh, their stealing, uh, so that that could be paid for. There was only one man who was allowed to go in and do that. And that was the high priest, and only on one day of the year. Okay? And interestingly, uh, if you look up the actual ritual for uh, the Day of Atonement, it actually has 22 steps that the high priest had to go through. It was still very regimented. It was very much a routine of this you have to do first, 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 this you have to do first. Then you can enter in the presence of God. Very, very briefly. Okay? And so the writer here, despite giving us this wonderful description of what's going on in uh, the tent of meeting, is actually saying, well, actually, there's something better than all of these little pieces that we've discussed. They all have deep significance. We could do a huge study on all of them, but actually, there's something bigger. And so, let's just continue on. And we're going to keep going. Verses 6 to 10. And it says, these preparations, having thus been made, so talking about Uh, having prepared everything in uh, the holy place and in the most holy place, the priests go regularly into the first section, into the holy place, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, as we were just talking about. And he only goes once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this... The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not uh, opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. 
According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So, that's an interesting uh, add-on. Basically, we're starting to get to see how the author of Hebrews is pointing to all of these uh, Old Testament rituals and saying, actually, they're not good enough. They don't do what we want them to do. They're not, uh, they're not actually sufficient for us in what we're, what we're actually looking for. Okay? Um, and it, it even says uh, that basically the uh, high priest, who's the only man who can go into this most holy place to be in the presence of God only one day a year, actually he can't even go in himself without actually bringing blood, not only for the sins of people, but actually he has to bring blood in for, the sin, for his own sin. He can't enter without actually bringing in blood for his own sin as well. It's a pretty highly inefficient system. And it only works for one year. It's something that has to happen year after year after year, that the priest comes in and he makes these atonements, he makes these sacrifices once again for the sins of the people, for the things that they've done wrong that year. And yet, we see a very interesting symbolism in this entrance into the most holy place. What we see is that actually God is desiring for us to draw near to him. God is desiring for us to come in and to come close. And there may be a problem, and we'll get to that, but God desires that we get near to him. And you can see it in the entire structure of how the tabernacle is put together, how the tent of meeting is put together. That actually, you've got an outer court, the holy place, where actually the priests are ushered in. And actually, they're, they're coming in, trying to get in to the presence of God, but, but separated. Separated, there's a barrier. They're not able to make it all the way. They've got that giant curtain. That can only be opened once a year for the, whole, for the high priest. But actually, that entrance into uh, the holy place that the priests are coming in, it's a progression. It's God wanting his pe- people to be able to come into his presence. And God's original purpose, if we go back to Genesis, God's original purpose for man was to reflect his character, reflect his glory, that God made man to have dominion over the animals, over the earth, because God wanted a relationship with man. He brought all the animals to man so that man could name them, so that actually God and man could have a relationship, so they could be together, so they could actually work together. He gave man toil upon his creation so that man could be useful in the creation that God had made, so that man could share and what God had done. God's original purpose was to be with man. He wanted man to draw near to him. He wanted all of humankind to draw near to him. And there's a symbolism of us progressing 
inwards. God wants us to progress inwards to that most holy place. But there's a problem. There's that barrier. There's that curtain. And it only comes down for one man and only once a year. And you can imagine being, and so I'll, I'll, I'll divulge a slightly um, awkward slash kind of funny and embarrassing uh, note about myself. Uh, many of you may not know this about me, but I'm actually the youngest of four children and youngest by a long shot. So I am, uh, I'm basically the baby of my family. Um, and treated as such, which I'm okay with because it kind of means that I get spoiled a lot, um, and so that's cool. But it also means I was the last one to leave home. Um, and mom, my mother, always makes a big deal whenever I go away, whenever I do something, whenever, I, whenever I'm not with her. Um, and so I just uh, remember being at the airport once, leaving to head over to England, and um, if you've been in the airport, there's that, that room once you get past and you've checked security and they've checked your bags. There's that room. It's kind of glass. And I just remember looking out and mom looked at me and I think she was probably more affected than I was. I was kind of happy that I was out and on my own for a little bit. Don't get me wrong. I love my mother, absolutely. But sometimes it's nice to be out on your own doing stuff. And, uh, you know, we were so close and yet there was this barrier that separated us. And I know my mother at that point, she's told me, <laughs> wanted to kind of leap through the glass and get me. But there was that barrier. She couldn't come get me. And it's the same thing my sister on when she sent her kids for the first day of school. I remember her looking at the bus with this really sad look as she saw her son waving goodbye. She wanted to go and get him and bring him back to her, but she couldn't. There was a barrier. There was something that was stopping her. And actually, it was the same for the Israelites. It was the same for the Israelites. It was the same for the priests, even. There was a barrier. There was something that was stopping them. Physically, we think of the curtain, but actually it was a deeper thing than that. Actually, it was their sin and their hearts. Because even though the high priest went in once a year to pay a price for the sins of the people, to pay a sacrifice for the sins of the people, it wasn't enough. Think about it like this. If you get a cut and it gets infected, and you can often tell when a cut's infected, it starts to have these red lines that radiate out from it. Well, you could actually take makeup, cover over it, pretend it's not there. Okay? You could even wash it, pretend it's getting better. But actually, you look at it in a few days, those red lines have spread. It's a spread of bacteria in your system. You're not going to get rid of the infection. 
unless you go right to the source, unless you go right to the bacteria. And the high priest, when he went and made those sacrifices, could not get to the heart of the issue. He couldn't get to the infection. He could put makeup on it, pretend it wasn't there. He could try and scrub it and say, oh, it's clean. But it was still infected. The sickness was still there. We read about it right even at the beginning. God was with man. Man walked with God in the Garden of Eden. What happened? Man disobeyed God. He sinned. And we talk about sin. Sin is disobeying what God has commanded. And there's consequences. There's always consequences for sin. Sin always has consequences. When we disobey God, there's always consequences. You can think about it like a legal case. When you do something wrong, there's always going to be consequences, right? If you're a robber, you steal some money from a bank, and you get caught, there's consequences. You're going to have to go up to the court. You're at least going to have to pay back the money, and chances are you're going to get some, some prison time. There are consequences for our sin against God, and there are consequences for the things that we do wrong. And what the Bible teaches is that is a heart issue. It's an infection. It's not something that we can just scrub clean. It's not something that we can just balance out by doing more good things. But actually, it's an infection. And unless we get some sort of medication for it, it it keeps going. We keep turning back to it. We keep doing things wrong. We keep lying. We keep stealing, maybe. Maybe uh, one of... Maybe maybe one of... uh, your, uh, your things that you do is uh, you actually uh, compulsively uh, can't stop uh, lying to someone or you are lazy and you just can't bring yourself to work. You can't bring yourself to do uh, anything. You can't stop yourself from thinking about just you, 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 you. Okay? It's a heart condition. It's a sickness. And if we're honest, we all recognize that we all do things wrong and that we're powerless on our own to do anything about it. It's a sickness, and we don't have a medicine for it. And that was the issue in the Old Testament. That was the barrier. It might have been a curtain physically that uh, that represented that barrier, but actually it was a heart issue that ultimately kept people out of that most holy place that kept people out of the very presence of God, that kept people out of enjoying fellowship with their creator, the one who created everything, the one who wanted to bless them. And even though God desired for his people to come on in, the whole of that tent of meeting was designed to show God wanting people to come in, to be in his presence, to have fellowship with him. God also had to recognize that sin has consequences. When we do things wrong, it separates us from God. God is perfect. And he's just. And he can't allow for sin and wrongdoing to go unpunished. 
and without consequence. Ultimately, the old covenant was inefficient and it was unsuccessful and it didn't do anything to solve the problem that the Israelites had. So then what is the answer? What is the answer? Well, the writer of of Hebrews continues on, verse 11 to 14. He says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then uh, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he answered once for all into the holy places. Pause for a second just to explain that. So we talked about how the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle, was a place where people came basically to be with the presence of God. And even though they were separated from it, there was that barrier. Actually, it was called the tent of meeting because it was the place of meeting with the presence of God. And so here, when it talks about Jesus Christ going through to a more perfect tent that's not made with hands, that is not of this creation, and entering into the holy place is what it's saying. Jesus actually enters into the very presence of God the Father. Okay? And it wasn't by means of the blood of goats and calves, but it was by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So what's the author saying there? Well, what he's saying is just this. Jesus Christ, God's son, the gift that God gave to mankind that we celebrate at Christmas. He came and lived a perfect life. Not only perfect in the sense of never doing anything wrong, but perfect in the sense of never even thinking wrong. That Jesus was perfect, morally perfect in every way. And that he was utterly devoted to God the Father. He was devoted to fellowship with his dad. He came and lived a perfect life. Something that we can't do. Something that's impossible for us. He offered himself up without blemish, and Jesus died. He was the sacrifice. Instead of, uh, as in the Old Testament, a goat or a bull that basically took on our sin, that took what our punishment should be for disobeying God, which is death, Jesus was the one who took it on. And because of his perfect life, because in his very nature, he was the son of God, his sacrifice meant an infinite amount more than the sacrifice of goats or bulls. And so, by his blood, he secured for us not just a temporary cancellation of our sin, not even just an eternal cancellation of the things that we've done wrong. He did do that. He did secure for us 
our righteousness, our right standing with God that takes into account our past, present, and future sins. He did that. But actually, his work was even better. The work of Jesus on the cross was even better than canceling our sin, than taking on the penalty that we deserve for our wrongdoing. What he did was he broke that barrier. He gave us the medicine that our sickness, our infection needed. That Jesus, by his blood on the cross, paid our penalty, and then, when three days later he rose again to life, actually empowered us to change our very nature, to change who we are and what we are, our very identity. No longer are we like the Israelites, unable to fight that sickness, unable to fight that infection, but actually when we put our faith in Jesus, when we believe in him, he sends the Holy Spirit to change our very hearts, to cure that sickness that we might stop the things that are harmful, the things that actually have created that barrier between us and God. And when Jesus died, and I think this will not be news to a lot of you, but when Jesus died, and that veil, that curtain, you know, the most holy place ripped, what was that symbolizing? Fellowship with God. Suddenly, we didn't have to mill about outside. We didn't have to mill about in the holy place, hoping, looking through the glass, and thinking, oh, man, it would be awesome if we could get in there and be with God, if we could know God. We didn't have to be there anymore. Jesus ripped that curtain. He destroyed the barrier in order that we could enter in to the very presence of God, that we could know our Father. And that's why we're meeting here today. That's why we come together. It's because God is with us. The very manifest presence of God is here with us. Jesus did something that even the Israelites were afraid to do when he rose again. You probably remember the story of the Israelites when Moses actually came back from meeting with God. They saw even just the glow of his face, and they're like, whoa, get it here. Put a bag over your head. Because they were so frightened by the glory of God. They were so frightened because God is so perfect and so holy, so amazing, that when we glimpse and see his glory, if our consciences are stained, if our sin is not paid for, we should tremble in fear. That we have turned our backs and that we have turned our faces away from the most holy, incredible, amazing God. Jesus did what we wouldn't do. He entered into the presence of the Father. And what was the consequence of that? Cut away our sin. Cut away our shame. That no longer do we have to be like the Israelites 
telling Moses to put the bag over his head, that we don't want to see the glory of God, that we don't want to be in the presence of God, that we don't want to enjoy fellowship with a holy, wonderful, amazing God. Actually, Jesus' sacrifice gave us right standing, that there is no longer any condemnation for those in Jesus. And so we can stand blameless before God, enjoying his presence, enjoying who he is, and enjoying a fellowship with him. And I think this will be something that's much more focused on as we look at uh, chapter 8, chapter 10. That's why I didn't want to touch on it too much, but we'll at least look forward to it. And actually, Jesus, when he secured this redemption for us, it was an eternal redemption. It was a one-time sacrifice because of the, the, the infinite increase in value of Jesus over these, uh, these goats and, um, uh, and these cows that were sacrificed. Actually, uh, it, was an, it, it was an infinite increase in value of the life of Jesus. And so only needed to happen once. It was a one-time thing. And it secured an eternal redemption for us. Incredible. It cleansed our conscience that we need not fear condemnation, that we can come before our Father, that we can call him Abba, our Dad, and we can trust that God is going to embrace us that we can experience that, that we can experience God's embrace in our lives, his forgiveness of us, despite our imperfections. And so we're actually going to celebrate today um, in communion. And what a perfect day to be talking about communion. Because what have we just been talking about? It's the sacrifice of Jesus. Communion is us coming together and remembering this Jesus who took all of our sin, who paid the ultimate price with his life, that he endured suffering and torture and ridicule for the sake of those who didn't even love him, those who threw stones at him. He endured all of this that we could be reconciled, that we could know God. And so we celebrate communion in remembrance of that act. We celebrate that communion in remembrance of the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice. And so just ask Dan, if you wouldn't mind, and the team, just to come up.